right, guys, what's going on? It's Daniel here from Stack Strength, and today I'm sitting down with Dr. Pat Davidson. Uh, so, Pat, first off, I want to say thanks for joining us on the episode. Can you start off by just telling listeners a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background and what you've been involved in? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to, Daniel. And, you know, thank you very much for, for reaching out to me and giving me this opportunity to uh, be on this podcast. And, um, yeah, I'm excited about this, this, this talk. I think it's going to be good to kind of focus on a couple of very specific topics um, in regards to some of the ways that power lifters are going about their training. But, yeah, I'll, I'll give some of my background so people uh, have an idea of where I'm coming from for this conversation. Um, you know, my, my academic background is that I got a master's in science degree in strength and conditioning. I got a PhD in exercise physiology. I've uh, worked as a professor at a couple different schools. Um, you know, I, so some of, the, some of the things that I'm known for beyond that uh, is, you know, while I was uh, working as a professor, I got into competing in strongman. I was at Springfield College and we had a, uh, a competitive team that we called Team Iron Sports. And I, I started it with a couple of kids that were um, seniors at the time and, you know, one of those kids was Rob Kearney and another kid was uh, Ethan Grossman. And, and they're both doing some pretty amazing things. Rob Kearney is uh, currently, you know, the, the American record holder for the log clean and press. Um, Ethan Grossman is, is somebody that I work with on a day, day, daily basis. We're business partners. Uh, Ethan's going to be a very high level competitive professional bodybuilder. He's uh, kind of under the radar right now, but He's an absolute monster, and when he kind of breaks out on the scene competitively to a greater degree, people are going to know exactly who he is. Um, but yeah, while I was at Springfield College, we had um, a really interesting team where we had bodybuilders, powerlifters, strongman athletes, crossfitters, weightlifters. We all trained together, and I, I coached that team, and um, and we had some some really six sessions down in the weight room at that place uh, at the end of the day at night. And, um, and we had some amazing athletes come out of that system. Uh, like I mentioned already, uh, the two gentlemen, uh, Rob Kearney and Ethan Grossman, but we had uh, both of the Hadge brothers uh, down there. We had another guy, Matt LaCroix, who was really an incredible competitor who I don't believe competes anymore, but um, I coached and I also competed. And, and at that time, like, you know, we, we would bring a team to the uh, Strongman National Championships. We qualified a number of guys for the Arnold Classic World Championships in various weight classes. And, um, and some of our, our best guys have, like I said, continued to go on. And uh, Kearney's competed at World's Strongest Man. He's done really well. Uh, you know, he and uh, Zach Hadge have both competed on the main stage for the Arnold Classic uh, Pro Championship. Nick Hadge is, um, you know, competed at a super high level. The Hadge brothers themselves have competed for the, uh, the team world strongman uh, championship. So, I mean, just we had a, it was a unique college experience, I think, for the guys that got to take part in that. It was a unique experience for me as a professor to be involved with that. I, I loved it. You know what I mean? I was in there banging weights with those guys just as hard as anybody. I, I, uh, competed in a couple of national championships and qualified for a couple of world championships in the 175 pound weight class. Uh, it was fun, you know, even 
one year, like I competed against some of the guys. We had a 185-pound kind of like catch weight class uh, for world championships at the Arnold. They brought the 200-pound guys down and the 175-pound guys up. So it's funny, like, you know, me and Zach Hadge competed against each other. Matt LaCroix, we're all going head-to-head for that 185-pound world championship. That's awesome. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was cool just uh, just living that life, you know, as a team. We would travel together. We would, you know, obviously train together. We would – it was funny. We would eat lunch at the dining hall together. And, and you know, I'm mentioning the, the, the guys that were kind of the big names and that, that are still remaining big names in those sports. But we had – I believe 37 guys on the team uh, our second year and we ate as a team and yeah, we had a, you know, it was like you you had the football team eating at one, one uh, big group of tables with their coaches and and all that kind of stuff. And, and then we had team iron sports almost like right next to them with all of our athletes and me as the coach sitting there with them. And, um, and it was a hell of an experience, you know, it really was. Um, But it was really fun to try to, utilize everything that I knew both from like a scientific background as well as you know I've, I've always been very interested in staying involved with many of the progressive strength and conditioning coaches in um in our field so so really trying to use everything that I could from you know I basically designed our training system off of like a Charlie Francis vertical integration model of thinking about all the variables that you would need keeping those variables in our program at all times, just kind of tuning the dials up or down, depending upon what kind of phase we were in, trying to match strength qualities with certain shows that you might have. If you have a show that requires more speed and lighter objects, you know, really trying to work more rate of force development and, you know, even elastic qualities and things of that nature to try to get the the athletes really matched up very nicely with what they need to express physically, with what the events actually curtail, um, you know. But I also did a lot of things with these guys in terms of trying to understand breathing principles, uh, being able to really maximize biomechanics, making sure that that every movement path that they had was was as clean as it could possibly be. Uh, really focusing on things like technique, fitness movement expression, uh, getting them in touch with their body, giving them really good strategies on recovery, nutrition, making it as scientific as we possibly could. And because my goal was I didn't want these guys to just, you know, be in there and, and, and wear them out for two, three, four years while they're in there. You know, these, these were guys that, that cared about this as a field. You know, it's like I, I had the best coaching job in the world. I've got these kids that are willing to put their head through a brick wall to do whatever you need them to do on paper. Uh, But then you also have a situation where I was teaching them in class. Like I would have most of these guys uh, in two or three classes a week, you know, they, they, they would see me all damn day. It's like, Oh, it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Well, you know, I've got this guy for statistics in the morning at 8 AM. I've got him for uh, strength and conditioning at 10 AM. And I've got him for exercise testing for special populations at 1 PM. We're going to eat lunch after that class. And then we're going to come back and train at night at 7:30, And then we're going to do it all over again the next day. And we're going to do this for the next like two, two, three years out of your life. And um, so it was, it was pretty awesome, but it was, my favorite part was that these guys, after they would have me for classes over the course of two years, 
and us training together for those periods, they would really understand, oh my God, this is why we're doing all of these things in our program design. This is the background that forms the theory and here's the application of how we're actually doing it. And um, you know, these guys were hungry, they love to learn, they love to, to be exposed to these concepts and different coaches methodology. And it's like, hey, if I can get these guys reading about diaphragmatic function and I can get them reading about uh, you know, Charlie Francis vertical integration concepts, which then leads them into, you know, things that would be involved with old Soviet program design, which can spin them off into energy system development. You know, it just, it was a never ending sort of a, a framework that let these guys explore tons of topics um, and find what they were really interested in. You know, we had um, Andrew Triano, who's a brilliant kid, who's done a lot of things and, and he's been so interested in things at the molecular level and really trying to put a lot of pieces together from a biochemistry standpoint. Um, you know, just, just really, uh, I had so much fun doing that. Uh, but, you know, after that, I, I left Springfield College. I, I came down to New York City and uh, I've been down here for six years now. And the journey's gone in different directions that for various reasons with, uh, you know, coming to a business that, that ended up not working out but it's led me to be able to create my own business opportunities. And, uh, you know, right now I'm, I'm sort of launching a few different things, but one of the things that I think is, is most relevant is a concept that's called strength score. And I don't, I don't know if you've even seen any of that stuff, but uh, uh, Ethan Grossman and I came up with this concept of, you know, it'd be a lot cooler if you could lift weights and we could have technology that would actually know the load and it would know the distance that the bar traveled through. But that way, if, if we can know those, those two variables for every single repetition that you're performing on a training day, we actually know the mechanical work that you put out. And that's like just the most fundamental variable that you could possibly have. Uh, but if, if we could have it technology-wise where it's just doing it for you and scoring it rep by rep and displaying it for you visually as you're going through your training session, and it keeps that information for you after, uh, you know, people can like make, have the easiest way of tracking their data and they can keep that data over time and compare their performances. Uh, and, and I think that that's a very important concept because, uh, you know, number one, I, I just feel as though uh, a lot of people are not very consistent in the way that they perform repetitions. Uh, number two, people do track volume but they basically only track weight on the bar and number of repetitions that they perform total. Uh, and, and they don't actually factor in the distance that the bar traveled. And I'm like, well, if, if we're tracking volume, you really, there's only, there's only two parts of this equation, really. There's kind of load and total distance. And if you don't actually account for total distance, then, then you're maybe only 50% accurate, you know, like, the total distance between I'm I'm five foot six and I've got very very short arms and legs relative to my axial skeleton. Uh, I probably need to do significantly more total repetitions to be able to actually come close to the mechanical work that a taller athlete with longer arms and legs would do for squatting and bench pressing and and basically all your squatting and pressing exercises. Uh, it's not equal stuff. Um, and so, you know, we, we finished launching our first version of this in terms of using Kaiser equipment. 
Um, and we have a scoreboard up in our gym. And as you're going through your workout, every single rep is measured and displayed for you visually in terms of the work that you just did. And, uh, and we're moving on from that concept to the point where people would be able to use their cameras on their phones. And if that camera is looking at you while you're performing a repetition, it'll be able to know the exact same information and score you as you're going. Um, and that's, and that's something cool. that, yeah, that's something that we're hoping to have done in about seven or eight months. Um, but it, and it, again, it's just like for being able to actually track your volume now, even because I'm, I don't know how many people are actually meticulous enough to actually write down all of their information <laughs> and, and actually do it. But now as long, like, as long as your camera is going to be on you, it's going to know the exact distance that your bar went every single rep. It's going to know the load on the bar and it will be able to track it rep to rep to rep, set to set to set, workout to workout to workout. And, uh, and I think that that's going to really be a fairly revolutionary thing for a lot of people. And especially if you've trained people, if you've trained general population clients or athletes, I mean, you basically know that, that, uh, they, they sort of cheat a ton of reps. Uh, you know, they, maybe reps one through three are full range of motion. And then they kind of mail it in after that. But but I, re I really look at it like uh, it's, for the most part, doing things right in some ways punishes you. Because if you actually squat all the way down, you're going to have to use less weight. If you actually squat the exact same distance on all of your reps, you might get less reps than if you kind of cheated two or three reps. And uh, it, it is almost like previously you would be psychologically rewarded by getting your 10 reps versus psychologically punished by only doing eight reps the right way on all eight reps. And now it's kind of like, well, actually, no, you're rewarded because you actually you got punished because you didn't go very far on those other reps. Mm -hmm. And the score is so obvious. Like the, the, when you actually see it displayed for you visually, the distance is such a huge variable. It's, it's just insane how much it accounts for with that. Um, and it's, it's really changed when you look at, like, uh, just from a personal training standpoint, the behavior that people display. You know, we, we've got it, like, some exercises you do just the left arm at one point in time, just the right arm. And it's kind of like, hey, your, your left arm just did way less work here than your right arm. And we did the same number of reps. What, what, what happened over there? And people immediately make those, those it's like, uh, you know, you made school important for people when you gave them a report card at some point. And prior to that, a lot of people, like how many people actually do things the right way just to do it the right way? Very few people in the world do it that way. Only, only kind of crazy people that take something so seriously and make it a way of life. But the majority of humans on earth aren't like that until you actually start scoring them. So it's, um, it's a pretty cool concept that we've been working on for about five years. And it's finally kind of here and, uh, and getting out there. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm just somebody I, I'm involved. I'm involved in a million different projects at all the time. You know, I've got a, a book coming out with Renaissance periodization in late September, early October. I've got this strength score project going. Um, you know, I try to do seminars all the time. Uh, I, I like to be able to, you know, probably I'm, I'm probably best known for biomechanics related concepts. But at the same time, like, you know, if, if we want to talk energy systems or hypertrophy mechanisms, I can kind of throw my hat in that ring as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, it's, I always find it hard to focus on one thing whenever I'm talking about what I'm up to. 
it's almost like uh, I, I definitely think I've got a, a solid case of, of ADHD that, that rains its ugly head from time to time, and I never know exactly where something's going to go. But I try to attack everything that I, I jump into with, uh, with a lot of ferocity. That's awesome, though. And I, I think it keeps people really honest, too, and, and the quality of content really high that they're producing because, I mean, if you follow what you're interested in, then there's going to be a high degree of passion around whether it's your writing, your podcast, your seminars, whatever. And so, I don't know. I, I, I think that's a great approach anyways. And uh, so there's a couple things in there that you said that I guess are, are a really good kind of jumping off point for this conversation. So to give a little bit of background context, uh, just for the listeners, one of the things that I've become increasingly interested in has been the training of other sports, right? And, and how that could potentially relate to improving performance in powerlifting. And so a really simple example that I often give is, you know, the concept of specificity and specificity, how it's generally used, I think is really narrow, right? So how I look at specificity and maybe this is wrong, maybe this is right, but how I, how I personally like to conceptualize it is what's going to give you the highest transference into your sport practice. Now that's not always going to be the most specific thing in terms of exercise selection or loading parameters or whatever, but that's going to have the highest transference, right? And so a lot of the times I've found that coaches and athletes have this overvaluation or sorry, overvaluation of specificity, or at least what generally people call specificity. And, and usually I think it looks something like um, an activity that looks similar to the competitive movement, right? So low bar squatting for a power lifter, you know, competitive style deadlifting and, you know, competition bench press, things like that. And then it scales down to the different derivatives from, from there. Um, but if you, if you take it, let's say one standard deviation over and you look at strongmen, those guys are insanely strong and they have a whole lot more variation and conditioning in their approach to training. And then if they were to step into powerlifting, I mean, let's be honest, they're going to sweep most competitions. They're going to be up there with the absolute best, if not smoking the best, you know, and their, their training is less specific, or at least I think you could argue that it's less specific. And then you take that one step further, even into rugby athletes, uh, football players, throwers, and these guys are insane. Like there's tons of lifters, there's tons of uh, football players who are squatting 700 or more. And they don't even know whether that's good. That's just, they're like, I don't know, I just do it. And they have terrible form a lot of the times, but they're doing it, right? And so, so that's always something that's been really, really interesting to me. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to chat with you, Pat, was because you have uh, sort of a unique perspective on it because A, you have the academic background. B, you actually have a, a lot of real world experience in strength sports in, in com from a competitive standpoint but then you also have a lot of experience um, as a sport coach, right? And so um, I guess to start this conversation off, like why are some of these football players so strong when their training is so much less specific than a power lifter? I know yeah. it's broad, but you know, I, I think that's a good place to start. So I would say um, if, you, if you look at the talent pool in American sports, Football wins by such a large margin, it's not even close. 
And and look, I guess football is becoming somewhat less popular in the United States as you know the head injury stuff. Uh, the information on that has come out, and you know younger generations are are tending to go more in the direction of like basketball and and other areas for what they find cool. But but even despite that, football still is the most dominant American sport. It's got its own fucking day. Okay, it owns Sunday. Yeah, it's it's practically a religion. Uh, you know, football is is still the king here. And like, if we took our best athletes from football and we had redirected them towards other Olympic sports at, at you know points in their you know the development of those athletes, uh, there's not a single sport that wouldn't be dominated by football players, in my opinion. You know, it's it's just like mm-hmm. if you actually reach the NFL. You have survived the most grueling and demanding Darwinian selection process in American sports that we have available to us. I still look at it like if you are the best athlete in your region, you are probably the best football player on your high school team. And it just, it just is a, it's a massive Darwinian selection process to figure out who the best athletes in our country are because they all end up going through the, the gauntlet of, of figuring out who makes it to the highest level of football. Okay, so from a genetic standpoint, it's not even close in the United States that it, like, look, like, I think, uh, let me think of another sport that has just an incredibly low talent pool in the United States. Like, men's tennis is in an unbelievably low talent pool. You basically have a very small selection process like if you're rich enough to live somewhere uh, to be able to go to a country club and get instructions, you're probably going to be a good player on your varsity team, you know, and you might even get a college scholarship. And it's, it's like you wouldn't have even been considered for trying out for football in, in that same, same region. So it's, it's kind of a joke when you compare the talent. Like basketball has a very good talent pool too. Uh, you know, but for the most part, it's, it's not even close in terms of where the best athletes in the United States go. They go in the direction of football and it's, it's the best athletes, in my opinion, are always going to win whatever you put them in. They're, they're going to find a way because it's not just a physical thing. Like people, people always think genetics is just a physical thing. It's not the case at all. Like there's, there's so many interesting studies on identical twins separated at birth. And what you find is that they oftentimes marry people that are like almost the same person. They'll name their, they'll buy the same kind of dog breed. They'll name the dogs almost the exact same name. They'll have like the same kind of political sorts of, of uh, directions that they'll go with in their life. They're, you know, sometimes their nickname from their friends will be the same. It, the, the level of behavioral uh, things that come out of your genetics is incredible. You know, the, the, your tendency to display grit, your, anything that you can imagine, like we, we give genetics far less credit than it deserves in terms of, cause we just think, oh, this person's genetically gifted. They have a good chassis in terms of the shape of their skeleton and their fast twitch fiber profile is appropriate for explosive sports. And it's like, that's part of the puzzle. But so many other parts of this, like they got the genetic gift of having the ability to display the kind of grit that is t- that it that's necessary to be able to show up at practice day after day after day after day to be able to when you're banged up 
you still go out there and you do your drills. You know, it's, it's, it's so many more things than just the physical presentation of your skeleton and, you know, the fiber type that you display at a cellular level. Yeah, I mean, I've so, even seen research on like uh, pain tolerance and willpower and, and various like psychological thresholds being uh, pretty heavily influenced by genetics as well. So I've, I have seen um, quite a bit of the research that you're talking about, and it's pretty shocking when you actually see it firsthand and you're like, oh, okay. Like it makes you kind of understand some of the, the neuroscientists who say, there's no such thing as free will, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like, Hmm, I understand where you're coming from a little bit better now. So anyway, sorry, yep. go on. No, but I mean, some people are just cut from a cloth. That's like a savage based cloth. Right. And it's like, I bet your grandfather was a bad motherfucker, yeah. you know, like, so it's, uh, it's hard to get around that in some ways. And you know, so it's, it's kind of like, again, like I always say like, Hey, the best athlete's going to win. Like, however it is you want to cut, cut it up in one way, shape, or form. Because usually they psychologically figure out a way to win, you know? Right. Uh, same thing I would always tell the, the, the team that I worked with in Strongman. The only people that aren't going to make weight are the people that don't want to compete. If you want to compete, you're going to make weight. And, hey, I'll give you the best structured approach. Like, hey, if you want to count your macros and time it out and, you know, have this many boluses of appropriate protein and you know, hit satiety indexes and blah, blah, blah. We can build that out for you. But I know right now that if you don't want to compete, if you don't want to win, you're not going to make weight. If you want to win, you will make weight. And I don't even know how you're going to do it. Maybe you'll follow the best protocol available. Maybe you're going to do something insane, but you're going to make weight. And if you're the best athlete, you're going to win. Uh, it's like a Randy Macho Man Savage kind of thing. The cream always rises to the top. Mm -hmm. And the difference for me is the best athlete always wins. It's how long the best athlete can win that comes down to the coaching and following scientific rigor and best practice. Right. Yeah. If, if you can take the best athlete and now direct them towards optimization, now they're going to win for a longer period of time rather than just being a flash in the pan. And um, so that, that to me is the differentiation and the distinguishment. It's just that people tend to make the mistake of not giving the behavioral driving components of what will lead to the best athlete enough genetic credit. And, mm -hmm. and that's the stuff that drives me kind of crazy because it's like, just change your mindset, you know, just be tougher. And it's like, this person doesn't have it. It's not wired into their system from their ancestors. Mm -hmm. Like this person's ancestors, I think would have been just as frustrating uh, as this person is. Yeah, maybe they've got the right shaped skeleton and they look like they should be able to dominate, but they don't. And I bet you somebody said the same thing about their, you know, 22 time great uncle when they were out hunting. Like, man, why doesn't this guy take down more zebra? Like this dude looks like he should be an absolute monster out here, but he's not like this guy's always kind of getting in the way and bumbling up the operation. Um, so it's, it's just, a, it, it's funny to me, but I, I do think of a lot of things through kind of an evolutionary lens. And I just think that the, that lens is always crystal clear 
It's just the degree of the number of perspectives and angles that you can look through that lens from that throws people off because some people become too myopic and think that an evolutionary lens of examination is only seen through one directional perspective. And it's like, uh-uh, right. uh-uh. This thing is, is, is a sphere that you're looking through. And, and if, you're, if you're only looking at it from up here, you're missing so many parts of this thing. Yeah, that's so, why. Yeah, it, like, just, to, just to kind of mm-hmm. summarize that really quick to wrap it up, like football is the, is the Darwinian selection process of the greatest athletes in the United States. And the factors that go into uh, who survives that are probably largely genetically driven more than we give them credit for in more areas than we do. That being said, you do have these weird pockets of like, why are there so many great athletes coming from this one sort of a place? You know, that's the thing that I think is the, is the confounding variable. And the same way, like nobody, like people in Strongman, when, when we started rolling out a team from Springfield College and we would show up and sweep national championships, they were like, what the hell happened? Like, how did the 200-pound champion, 231-pound champion, and 175-pound champion all come from the same place, this random Division three college in Massachusetts in the middle of nowhere? Like, what the hell is this all about? There's, there's doesn't make any sense. And, and I think that's where you'll have some kind of methodology uh, or environment that can supersede even the other thing. Uh, but usually there's something going on there that's different from everything else. Right. But when, when you get to a, and, and that's tough though, because it's like, if you compare strongman competition talent pool to football talent pool, it's too small. So people make these kinds of examples, but they're examining it through a tiny talent pool lens. As the talent pool grows, now you're going to see the genetic uh, uh, selection process become much more pronounced. And, and that's what we have with, with, the, with football, is it's a large enough talent pool to where it eliminates, in many ways, these tiny pockets of differentiated practice and environmental drivers that can really overcome a lot of other factors but big enough talent pool you it'll, it'll become a purely darwinian selection process yeah and that's that's something that's sort of bugged me has been people's use of the expression if you can't explain it in simple terms then you don't understand it because on, on the one hand i obviously agree with it to a certain point but at the same time, I feel like it's it's taken out of context a lot more often than it's used in the correct context. Because, for instance, what you were just talking about is an incredibly complex discussion. So it's like, okay, I mean, I can explain this to you, but in order for me to explain this to you, you need to have a pre-existing understanding of this and this and this and this. So if you have seven hours, I can break yeah. down all of these things and explain them to you so that you can understand this concept or else you're really not going to get it. Mm-hmm. And that's not, you don't understand this. That's there's some things that are just really fucking difficult to understand. And there's so much that goes into it. And like you said, with genetics, I think that's a really great point as well, that people tend to have a very narrow view of 
the factors that are actually influenced by genetics. They, like you said, see someone's skeleton and their potential for muscle growth or, you know, their, their distribution of fast twitch to slow twitch fiber types. Um, and so that, that kind of brings me to, I guess, the, the second question. So what are, in your opinion, some of the limitations that you see within common approaches to powerlifting program design or athletic development on, on a long-term scale? So I, I think, and again, you know, what you just brought up is, is the major factor that I'm trying to figure out how to work around here because we have a, such a limited amount of time mm -hmm. to get to this central issue. And I think it's really hard for me to do that because it's like I have to skip 27 steps in the explanation, but I want to be able to give uh, some perspective on this. All right. And, and it's like, uh, I was mentioning earlier that I, I, I wrote a book, it's currently being edited and we're going to have the graphics people get in there and do their thing. And it's going to be on, uh, on RP probably October ish time period. Uh, and you know, I, I titled the book rethinking the big patterns. I think we're going to change the title around a little bit. The editor was like, eh, it's not the best title in the world. I'm like, ah, all right. Like whatever you think is better, it's fine. But you know, the, the draft that I put together that I sent over to the editor is 187,000 words. You know, it's, it's a, it's a massive book. So it takes me a little bit of time to ultimately make these points, you know? Um, and, but the, the central premise of this book is that I, I think that I, I think that I can describe every different kind of possible training movement through a seven pillar system. Okay. Like, uh, the seven pillars that I constructed for this are, are movement quality, movement quantity, um, I have to remember these damn things, movement standardization, movement progression, movement strategies, muscular orientation, and muscular action. Okay. So those are the, those are the seven pillars. Like, and then for movement quality, it, I, I tried to basically think of what are the different training movements that are available. And I, I came down to 13 different things. But in my head, when I think of movement quality, I think of what is the shape that the organism assumes and what is the direction that the organism moves through space in while creating that specific shape, all right? And, and like the, the 13 patterns that I came up with were uh, uh, breathing, core exercises for the pelvis, core exercises for the thorax, locomotion, throwing, change of direction, triple extension, hip dominant movements, knee dominant movements, horizontal pushing, horizontal pulling, vertical pushing, vertical pulling. Uh, and, you know, you can move through space in the transverse plane, the frontal plane, and a sagittal plane. Some of those movements you can't do all of the planes in, but most of them you can. Uh, and, and there's different arrangements of your feet that you can put yourself into that, you know, make them different as well. And I categorize those two. There's a bilateral stance, there's a front back stance, and there's a lateral stance. And, and to me, I'm, I made those different movement qualities and I divided them because I think that there is a degree of specificity between them that, that makes them different from one another. And it's like, for instance, with a knee dominant exercise, 
I've seen plenty of people that are very impressive with two foot squatting in a bilateral stance. Uh, and the minute that you put them into a lateral stance, they literally can't even execute the movement with body weight. It's like you can squat the house and it looks beautiful here under load. But now that I've put you into this body weight position and I'm asking you to do a lateral lunge, you literally can't even execute the movement. You know, like it's, it's a completely different task that I'm asking you to do. Um, and so like that's, that's one part of it. Uh, the next region is, is movement quantity. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like I, I try to, I separate that into load, velocity, and duration. And then each of those has a sub, sub region. You know, each of them has three sub regions, high load, low load, moderate load, high velocity, moderate velocity, low velocity, long duration, short duration, moderate duration, with specific numbers that kind of differentiate those things. And again, all I'm looking for is that this thing is different from that thing, that we could say that, uh, you know, short duration, high velocity locomotion with low load is very different, which if you think about what that is, it's sprinting. That's very different than high load, low velocity, short duration locomotion, which would be a loaded carry. Like just because you're great, like the best sprinter in the world, Usain Bolt's probably not going to be the best at the yoke. You know, uh, like there, it's the same motor pattern. It's locomotion. You're going from point A to point B by putting one foot in front of the other repeatedly. Right. But different loading zones under different velocity characteristics make it very different, okay? Uh, and then we kind of move on from there, uh, movement standardization. Like I have very specific rules based upon uh, the shape of the human skeleton and what differentiates a human skeleton from a chimpanzee skeleton that govern why I want people to move in very specific ways and I divide it into motor competencies and sensory competencies that tell you whether or not something is right or wrong. Um, and that's too much to get into and explain in this. But from there, it goes into movement progression. And I try to give very specific rules based upon, you know, physics and gravity and, and other principles that tell you exactly what kind of a drill would be the best first place to start people and what would become progressively more challenging for people to perform according to the standards that are in the previous pillar. Uh, once you kind of work your way through that, the next area that we get into are movement strategies. And, and these are the pillars that I want to spend more time on to answer this particular question. Uh, movement strategies, muscular orientation, and muscular action. Because I, I think that the other ones, people can kind of intuit and conceptualize and be like, okay, I get it. Like throwing is a different thing than hip dominant exercises like a deadlift, okay? Uh, or, you know, like I, I always give the example of Charles Barkley's golf swing to be able to try to differentiate. Like Charles Barkley is one of probably the best 15 basketball players that has ever lived. And he is maybe one of the 15 worst golfers that has ever lived. And if, you know, I would put the golf swing into the throwing pattern. It's, it's very similar. The mechanics of, of, of swinging a club or kicking something and mm -hmm. throwing are all kind of linked together with the sequencing and the, and the way that, that it's executed. So how could someone who is so unbelievably talented 
at locomotion, triple extension, and change of direction be so unbelievably bad at a throwing pattern like swinging a club? Because they're different. You know, I've seen plenty of really strong guys in powerlifting and strongman have the worst-looking football throw I've ever seen in my life. Like, bro, you throw like, like a Punch and Judy doll. Like, that is the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen somebody do. Like, just go home. Like, don't ever pick up a football again. Um, so there, there's just, like, there's differences between these things. And, and I think that in large part, the differences come down to your ability to express specific movement strategies under different conditions of muscular orientation with different muscular actions. And, and I think that the more that people begin to understand these three pillars, the more that they'll appreciate what actually constitutes specificity uh, versus things that are in, incredibly different from one another. And mm -hmm. so muscular strategy to me, and this is stuff that, that comes from Bill Hartman, who I, I think is one of the greatest minds in the history of both rehabilitation and performance science. And he is not well enough, well enough known. And I think even when people do figure out who he is, he, they're not going to understand what the hell he's saying. It takes a long time to understand what Bill is actually trying to say. And he doesn't give two shits about whether or not you understand him. He's doing his own thing with his own, own thought process, and he's influencing a lot of people that have put in an unbelievable number of hours to understand what this guy's talking about. But again, like his concern is not whether or not you understand it. It's him forging his own theoretical model. Is, is um, just as like a, a really quick question, like Bill Hartman, just yep. to, so, so I remember if, if I remember correctly, is he um, the guy who talks about movement as being all related in, in the transverse plane? That's correct. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so go on. So when you get into muscular or, or movement strategies, Bill would say that there's only two of them. There's compression and there's expansion. And, uh, and, and it's, it's he, he says, like, he's basing this off of this idea that, that uh, biology is a fractal system, you know, and, and that with any kind of fractal system, there is one simple rule that is the guidepost for how everything else works. And, and it's, it's kind of like biology started very simple as a single-celled organism. And it became much more complex with evolution. It diversified, it multiplied, it became more differentiated over time. You know, uh, but at the same time, that which governs the behavior of the cell governs the behavior of the macrocosmic thing that you're seeing in front of you. It's just that when you're looking at an entire human organism, there's so many different pieces and parts that are working together at the same time. The interplay of those things creates complexity, and complexity is hard to evaluate. Mm -hmm. However, if you can understand the simple rule that is all the way back at the beginning, the same simple rule actually begins to express itself at every level of the system, once you can understand it, see it, and appreciate it. And so his simple rule is that movement is either an expansive strategy or a compressive strategy. And that this actually carries over to everything. It's not just biological movement, it's inorganic movement as well. 
that which governs inorganic movement actually governs organic movement. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing that explains the movement of the universe. It's the same thing that explains the movement at a molecular level. It's the same thing that would explain diffusion. It's the same thing that it would explain whether or not you can swing a golf club, you know? And, and when you are talking about it from examining a human organism moving through space, we have certain joint actions that are associated with an expansion strategy and certain joint actions that are associated with a compression strategy that are stereotypical that ride along with, you know, basically just the shape. And, and so the skeleton in many ways provides the constraints that we have available to us for movement and the degrees of freedom of movement. And, you know, he, he'll try to explain it like, uh, like, hey, imagine that you fill a rubber, you know, a latex glove with water, okay? And you, you, you don't fill it, fill it all the way. You give it a little bit of, of room to be able to still, like, move. And imagine that I hung a kettlebell off of the thumb of the latex glove. How would I create a kettlebell swing of the latex glove? And it's kind of, well, you'd have to squeeze it over here. And if you squeeze the glove over here, it's going to direct fluid and pressure over here and pop it's going to send it up okay you compressed this side to expand the other side and that movement of of one area compression compressing you, you're able to create this drive in another direction and essentially that's kind of what we're doing with our bodies to be able to create directional movement it's just that the arrangement of your bones create expression in specific directions like your ankle just has boundaries and blockers and constraints so that it can't just three-dimensionally expand if if there's compression in a given direction it can go that way because there's just blockers it would go in all those ways if those blockers weren't there but because those things are there it limits the expression of this thing and it tricks your mind into thinking that you're seeing some purely sagittal thing when in fact, it's just a, it's like if you have these blockers over here, it's, it's, it's a visual, it's our, it's our way of our limited brains trying to make sense of an impossibly complex expression. And, uh, yeah. and I, I love the way his brain works on this. But um, if you were to look at the movements associated with compression, it's internal rotation, extension, adduction, uh, pronation, dorsiflexion are the, the big primary ones. And from the respiratory system's uh, contribution, it's the exhale part that is compressive in nature. Um, and the opposite would be associated with the expansion, where it's going to be external rotation, flexion, abduction, supination, uh, and plantar flexion that go along with, with those things from a joint action perspective mm -hmm. and inhalation from the respiratory system's contribution. And, and kind of a simple way to think about it is, I always explain it actually through women's tennis. Uh, when someone goes to hit the ball, you've never heard a women's tennis player go <sighs> as they're creating impact. It's always, <sighs> you know, they, they make these noises. Yeah. Like you can, like a, a martial artist, like or a boxer when they try to hit something they're creating compression and if you watch the hand of a tennis player when they're going to hit the ball they're pronating the hand 
they're internally rotating the arm, they're extending, uh, they're, they're crossing midline, they're adducting. It's the same action for all the things, you know? Uh, and it's, your, it's like that compressive element is the way that we're trying to launch things through space um, versus your ability to receive things is going to be more on the expansion side, okay? So the other two pillars, muscular orientation and muscular action, there's two pieces under orientation. Your muscles can be oriented in an eccentric orientation or a concentric orientation. And, and I love the way that he actually uses these terms here because they different, he's, he would say that it's like the concentric part of a bench press is, is the common use of it. But he's saying, let's not use those terms there because what they're actually describing is the relative length of the muscle, okay? And imagine any given muscle, okay? There is a resting position which is neither concentric nor eccentric. The minute that the muscle is lengthened beyond that resting position, it's now been positioned into an eccentric orientation. The minute that the muscle is shortened from that mid zone, it's now been moved into a concentric orientation. Plain and simple, end of discussion in regards to that topic. It's just you would have to assume that there is a resting zone that is neither lengthened nor shortened. The minute that you're shortened, you're concentrically oriented. The minute that you're lengthened, you're eccentrically oriented. The concentric orientation tends to ride along with the compressive strategy. The eccentric orientation tends to ride along with the expansion strategy, okay? Those are things that, that tend to be grouped together, but they're not always mutually, they're not always perfectly matched, okay? It's just that when you are maximally expanded, you are definitely going to be in an eccentric muscular orientation. When you are maximally compressed, you are definitely going to be in a concentric orientation. Mm -hmm. the, the last pillar is muscular action. And you are either yielding or you are overcoming. You're accepting or you are pushing away. Uh, and this is where I feel like everything kind of comes together. When you get the strategies, the orientations, the, and the actions all explained together is where the magic of these concepts really display themselves and where you really begin to see what the hell is a power lifter? You know, mm -hmm. what is a golfer? Like what's, because I, I, like to, I like to think of things more from the perspective of like, what are two very different body types? Like if I think about like a, a middle linebacker, a strong man and a power lifter, I'm like, eh, it's kind of the same dude, okay? If I think about a middle linebacker, a power lifter and a strong man versus a figure skater or a rhythmic gymnastic athlete, I'm like, oh, now I've got very different animals. It's almost like in National Geographic, like I'm looking at a gorilla versus an orangutan. Like these are two different creatures now, uh, and it's pretty obvious. So, you know, the action and the orientation. So like any time that, like it's in an easy way to explain it, if you are lifting the weight up, you are overcoming. If you are lowering the weight down, you are yielding, okay? The question then emerges, can you overcome from an eccentric orientation 
and can you yield from a concentric orientation? And the answer to those two things are yes. And your ability to do those things oftentimes dictates what functions you're capable of, of actually performing. So I try to give examples because it's like, you know, first of all, the terminology can be a little bit different. And people are like, okay, where the hell are we right now in the discussion? So I like to give an example of a task that requires you to be able to create a yielding action from a concentric muscular orientation. And an easy one for people to conceptualize is jump roping, okay? If you think about what's the primary muscle group that we're gonna be talking about, the gastrox and the soleus. What would be the concentric orientation of the gastrox and the soleus? Anytime the ankle is in plantar flexion, okay? If you are jump roping, there probably should never be a time when you actually reach a state, a state of being in dorsiflexion, okay? The minute that you go into dorsiflexion is the minute that the gastrox and soleus would now be in an eccentric orientation. But if you're jump roping, you should never be dorsiflexed. But there's a time where you, when you're yielding and there's a time when you're overcoming while you're jump roping. And being good at jump roping is associated with maintaining a concentric orientation of the relevant muscles while you are yielding. If you're unable to do that, you're gonna hit yourself in the feet every single time with the jump rope. This goes above and beyond that too, because when you talk about sports that require the concept of musculotendinous stiffness, the ability to display high levels of quantitative musculotendinous stiffness and that's great if you want to talk about what makes people run faster in sprinting and jump higher for things like vertical jumping. The more to which you can maintain a concentric orientation of the, relative, the relevant tissues while you are going through the yielding action, the faster you're going to run, the higher you're going to jump. And if I'm measuring you with laboratory technology, the higher your levels of mechanical stiffness of those tissues. You know, so when someone like uh, Stu McGill is talking about, you know, it's all about super stiffness, or, you know, a Cal Dietz is talking about a force plate and seeing a V and seeing this very rapid eccentric phase, and he's using eccentric as, the, as what I would call the yielding phase. When you right. see that rapid yielding and almost a non-existent isometric, uh, to me, what we're, we're giving a quantitative uh, grading to the qualitative ability to come as close as you can to holding on to the concentric orientation while you're yielding. So if you look at all of the sprinting research on the biomechanics of it, what you see is that basically the faster that you run, the less hip flexion, knee flexion, and dorsiflexion people display during the ground contact phase of running, okay? Mm -hmm. it's, it, and, and to me, all that means is that they're more concentrically oriented while they're yielding. So if you wanted to give a simple rule to this, the more that you maintain concentric orientation while yielding, the less the range of motion in the yielding direction, plain and simple. And the faster that you will transition between the yielding action and the overcoming action. Okay. Yeah. Uh, conversely, 
can you overcome from an eccentric orientation? The answer to that is obviously yes. Okay, if you reach the absolute rock bottom of a squat, you are in the eccentric orientation of the relevant muscles. And certainly, there's been examples of people that have squatted all the way down to glutes to calcaneus, and they have come back up from that position. So you can clearly do this, okay? Where this goes that follows on the same kind of basic premise and rule that I was trying to give is, the only way that you can maximize the range of motion in the yielding direction is by allowing those tissues to reach a full eccentric orientation. If you cannot allow your tissues to reach an eccentric orientation, you will never go to the full range of the yielding direction. Conversely, if you cannot allow your tissues to reach a concentric orientation, you will never go in the full range of the overcoming direction, okay? As you go through, a, like a biceps curl is maybe the easiest one to explain this with, because yeah. it's a single joint, it's super simple. I start at the top of a preacher curl, okay? I am in a full concentric orientation of the biceps, okay? I begin by yielding. I'm yielding from a concentric orientation. I get to about 90 degrees, I'm still yielding, I'm neither concentric nor eccentric in the orientation. Now the only way that I can continue to yield is I have to reach an eccentric orientation of the biceps. I go all the way down, I reach a maximum eccentric orientation of the biceps. Now I begin to overcome from this full eccentric orientation. I reach mid-zone. Now this is typically where people will fail too, okay? It's this transition in the overcoming direction from the eccentric orientation, you need to switch over and reach a concentric orientation to be able to finish the rep at the top, okay? If you cannot reach a concentric orientation, you cannot go full range of motion in the overcoming direction, okay? I realize that some of this is like, you're trying to follow this and timing, it's like the first exposure to this concept is like, wait a minute, what's going on? But if, if you look at it, like there's two directions that you can move in, yielding and overcoming. There's two kinds of muscular orientations that you have the ability to go into. Mm-hmm. An eccentric lengthened orientation, a concentric shortened orientation. If you want to maximize the overcoming uh, action, you need to be able to express the concentric orientation to the greatest degree you possibly can. If you want to maximize the yielding direction, you have to be able to allow yourself to get into the greatest eccentric orientation you possibly can. The overcoming action rides along and tends to be associated with compression. The yielding action tends to be associated with expansion. The concentric orientation tends to ride along and be associated with compression. The eccentric orientation tends to ride along and be associated with expansion. You need to figure out what sports require people to be able to maximize uh, compression, which would be the joint actions that I talked about, the exhalation strategy, the concentric orientation, and the overcoming action. Long story short, 
powerlifting is probably the ultimate expression of of compression it is the ultimate expression of being able to reach concentric orientations of muscles trying to hold on to that concentric orientation as long as you possibly can uh, and being able to overcome as much as you possibly can and it's all of the adaptations that are going to take place to the organism are going to maximize those things okay and it's like you 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 can recognize someone almost immediately by the way that they look and by the way that they walk and by the way that they carry themselves as you're never going to mistake an elite level power lifter they all look the same you know they've all created the same kinds of adaptations they've literally changed their skeleton to try to maximize all of these things it's like their it's like their elbows don't even look straight most of the time at any phase of their life um, you know they're so compressed and concentric and always with their foot on the gas pedal in terms of movement, it's like with body weight, they can't, you know, hit, uh, they can't go down to the bottom of a squat. It's like they just kind of stop. It feels like an imaginary force is there. Uh, you know, you try to tie your shoes and you're compressed. You can't even breathe when you try to get up. It's versus other kinds of athletes that are the complete opposite. They are expansion related. They are loosey-goosey. They can kind of just move with no restrictions. And, and it really does, once you're able to categorize these things and understand the nature of them, you can begin to see them play themselves out. And, and I would just say, like, a, a high-level football player, it's primarily compression. What are you trying to do? You're trying to compress the other athlete. You know what I mean? You're trying to, to create so much propulsion and drive and flatten somebody uh and oftentimes it's against and, and this is where it's like i try to let the other pillars come back into the discussion there's a large amount of external loading when you when you talk about having to interact with another large male primate who's trying to absolutely dominate you and you have your bodies colliding and there's like a a, a war between the two people that's a high level of load you know right. what i mean it's it's a vicious compressive confrontation between those two creatures at that point in time uh it's very different than tennis where there's compression involved when you're hitting the ball but it's very low load it's high velocity but there's no loading the tennis racket weighs ounces the ball weighs ounces it's not two 300 pound primates trying to struggle for position and whoever can compress the hardest wins um you know uh, uh, so it's the same thing like in terms of interacting with a large load and if you allow this eccentric orientation to take place and you go into this expansive strategy it's just probably going to be a thing where it's going to move you into positions and places that you can't deal with like so it's it's uh i mean that's kind of where i go with this stuff and it's like uh those are the, so we're when we're trying to develop a power lifter and i want this person i i would just say that like bench press deadlift and a power lifting style squat are all perfect examples of highest level compression exercises that's what they are there's a million other exercises that facilitate and lead to really high levels of compression as well
You know, it's just that the competition powerlifting exercises are perfect examples of compressive strategy drills. And if you train those things, you're going to teach your body how to compress harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. Uh, and it's also nice that it's, it just so happens that you're not necessarily wasting your time doing things that don't directly translate over to your sport. Uh, you know, I want to continue to answer this question, but it, it, it dovetails into another discussion topic. I, I, I hope that that first part was, was clear, understandable, and makes sense to people. I think that it was really interesting how it all ties together because I think what you just laid out was a really interesting conceptual framework. And uh, to be honest, I'm really excited for the book to come up because now I'm like definitely going to buy it. <laughs> um, but yeah, conceptual framework, because even looking at, like you were saying, you know, differences in muscle action, differences in muscle orientation, differences in compressive or sorry, compression and expansion from, from that theoretical aspect. Essentially what that does is it outlines a general basis for exercise selection, progression, um, you know, load selection, um, even bracing, breathing, like all sorts of different things. Yep. And, and even, you know, what aspect of the lift that you're prioritizing. So are you doing yes, sir, a yeah. super maximal, you know, eccentric load? Are you doing a pause squat? Are you doing breathed pause squats? All that stuff. And, and I think, I think some of the people might have to listen to this a couple of times, to be honest, I'm going to probably listen to this a handful of times because I know there's a lot of gems that, that I probably missed, or I'll need to hear a couple of times for me to really understand. But um, yeah, that was super interesting. Like really, really. So it's going to really blow your hair back because you're already there. And it's like, it's always hard to know how many pieces of this puzzle I can get to in one discussion mm -hmm. is what you just talked about in terms of phases of a movement. Okay. So, so I, I look at uh, every, every human movement works on an arc, okay? Every single one. Even if you look at a bench press, like people who are like fascinated with like bar pathways and stuff, you always see it kind of, you know, it, it moves on an arc. It doesn't move in a straight line. No one bench presses in a straight line. It always kind of comes down and back and it's like a, in an arc pattern. And um, so everything, everything does work that way. And I, I love speed-based sports. I love... I love rotational sports. I love speed-based activities, probably even more than I like strength activities, okay? So I love to be able to analyze golf swings and baseball swings and, and the ability to absolute, like to throw rockets. You know what I mean? Like I like to see pitchers throw 100 miles an hour. I want to see quarterbacks throw 85-yard uh, bombs. I want to see golfers hit 400-yard drives. That's, that, that's the kind of stuff I find even cooler than how much can you bench press. Um, but with those things, it's very Ooh, obvious. It's like, like blasphemy, eh? <laughs> I, I know, right? Like, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's like the when you look at at a bat traveling through the zone, okay? There's a or a golf ball, a golf swing. There's a backswing, there's a follow through, and then there's the impact zone, okay? The backswing is the expansion zone. The follow through is an expansion zone, and in the middle is the compression zone. Same thing with a slap shot in hockey. Same thing if you're trying to kick a, a field goal. Same thing if you're, if you're throwing a ball. I have a, a, a wind-up, a follow-through, and in the middle is the release point. And, and it's always the same actions, okay? It's always the same actions. In the back, in the wind-up, I'm in ER, supination, flexion, uh, you know, 
all of the pieces that I discussed previously. I need to be able to reach, reach an eccentric orientation. I need to be able to yield, okay? I create an overcoming action. Boom, it's pronation, it's internal rotation, it's extension, it's adduction, I'm crossing the body. And then I reach the follow through and it's all the other things. I have to once again yield and accept this force, you know? So I have to do all the things, I, you know, ER, supinate, uh, plantar flex, every, every, all the other opposite joint actions, okay? And, but where does this apply to lifting weights? You know what I mean? Because that's where people want to get to. If you look at a squat, for instance, you know, the, the, the top of the squat versus the, if, and I'm not talking about even powerlifting, even guys that squat deep in powerlifting are not going to the absolute rock bottom of the squat. And when I think about what is the absolute rock bottom of the squat, it's where people in third world countries go to to take a shit, okay? Mm -hmm. And when they're all the way down in that position, you have to be in an expansion zone. If you don't expand, you can't, you can't defecate, okay? That's the whole point of that position in a lot of ways. Where we go to is, is we're primary, like, so, so if I look at a squat, though, and I'm examining, and, and look, like, people do this in two different ways. They're either moving their hip through space backwards and then butt winking at the bottom to create an arc of motion. Mm -hmm. or they're moving with more of like a, a knees going forward perspective. So if I'm looking at most power lifters that are trying to reach full depth, because everybody wants to know, hey, why do we butt wink? And it's like, it's, it's very simple why you butt wink, because you can only move in an arc with every motion that you make. Every motion, like if a bicep curl is really obvious. Like I'm here, my hand is back, I lower it, my hand moves away from my body, at the bottom my hand is back towards my body. I, I, you know, I look at like Da Vinci with Vitruvian Man. He was trying to express this uh, a long, long time ago. He's showing arcs that move in the frontal plane, the sagittal plane, uh, the transverse plane with that drawing. And, and because every motion is an arc. And with, when you're examining something like a, a deadlift, for instance, is half an arc, okay? You stick your butt back, you bring it back in. It's just missing the bottom of the arc. A squat would ultimately, if you went all the way down, it's going to do the full arc. It's just what's your primary moving piece? Are you a hip back squatter or are you a knees forward squatter? If in the beginning of a squat, if I'm looking at it from the knees, okay, if it's a knee dominant, knees going forward, dorsiflexion dominant kind of a squat, in the beginning, your knees are back. As you descend and dorsiflex, your knees go forward. The only way to reach the absolute rock bottom of that squat is actually at the bottom, you have to bring your knees back to pull everything down so that your glutes are actually hitting your calcaneus. The point at which your knees are most far forward in, from creating maximal dorsiflexion is the 90 degree point of the squat. That would be the maximal compression zone of a squat, okay? The top of a squat is more expansive in nature. The bottom of a squat is more expansive in nature. The actual middle at maximum dorsiflexion with the knee dominant dorsiflexion uh, squat is your peak compression zone. Same thing. Because that's where most people's sticking point is roughly, you know, a couple inches above yep. or below. And if I have particularly, you know, I haven't gotten into this, 
you can analyze someone's skeleton and figure out if their skeleton is biased towards a compression strategy or an expansion strategy. Uh, you're never going to be a good power lifter unless you have a very compressed skeleton, okay? Uh, you're never going to be a good marathon runner unless you have an expanded skeleton. Uh, they're, they're complete opposites, you know? And so if I'm looking at, at a butt wink squat, it's just literally someone that shot the hips as far back as they can. They're basically squatting probably really low bar and they're almost, their squat is almost more of a good morning than it is like a, a squat. Right. And if they try to go full depth under that strategy, the only way that they can do that is now to butt wink to bring their hips back towards the midline or the, you know, the, the, the center of mass of the middle of their foot mm -hmm. from a sagittal plane perspective. It's, it's not even, to me, it's less, less of this anatomical specific thing Oh, you're butt winking because, you know, fill in the blank with, with whatever, you know, hamstring length, that garbage thing, or whatever it is. No, you're doing it because you have to, because your first movement was backwards. Your, your last movement has to come back forward to be able to create an arc um, because you, you don't have any other choices. That's literally the only way that a human body can move. Same as, but the, the where I'm going with this is that powerlifting for the most part, because the, like, let's say even, I'm telling you, if you think it's an ass to grass powerlifting squat, you are going to the compression zone and you're coming back up. The mm -hmm. way that you get better at powerlifting is you move your compression zone a little bit lower through changes and modifications of the shape of your skeleton. Maybe you create this entire anterior pelvic tilt so that actually now the starting orientation of your femur with your acetabulum is altered so that this arcing window has now just been shifted in one way, shape, or form so that when you have moved through space and it looks deep, you're still actually in the mid zone at the bottom of your squat, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's kind of an acid trip sort of a thought process to try to picture all of these moving pieces in space. But to me, that's the, the way that you solve the problem is mm -hmm. a bench press. Think about like if I'm, if I'm moving my arm through space and as soon as I, if my hands are down, if I'm standing up, my hands are down by my hips, I'm in an expansion zone. As I bring my arm through flexion in front of me, when I'm at 90 degrees, that is the maximum compression place. If I were to get full shoulder flexion, I'm back at maximum expansion again. Mid zone is 90 degrees. That is a bench press. Okay. Mm -hmm. That is the exact spot in the arc where your hand is as far away from your body as it can be. Same, same concept as a squat. When your knees are as far forward or your hips are as far back as they can possibly get, that is the maximum of compression. A deadlift at the bottom of a deadlift is the maximum of compression that you can possibly get to. You have attempted to move your hips back through space as much as you can and you've created a degree of relative dorsiflexion in the process. Even if you're at a neutral yeah. shin angle, it's still as compressed as you can possibly get. That sort of lines up really well with, I think some of the advice from a more practical standpoint that you'll hear. Um, one of the things that I've told my athletes at times is, and this is gonna sound counterintuitive, so obviously I need to create some caveats after I say it, um, 
you don't necessarily want to make your training exactly like it is on the platform. And again, I'll quantify that. So on the platform, let's say you're benching, you lower the weight. A lot of the times people will get used to resting the bar on their chest and then they use their leg drive and explode it off. Well, when you do that, you're kind of going from that like concentric phase, like you're saying, or not concentric phase, but the, the concentric orientation. Is that what orientation, you're saying? Orientation, yeah. So you're going from the concentric orientation almost back into like a neutral position because you almost relax a little bit. And then, uh -huh. you, and then you use your leg drive to get that initial pop and momentum and then you can you know, be strong again. Whereas a lot of the times I'll coach my athletes to come down and imagine they have like their chest is made out of like an eggshell. So they're just barely touching it. And you can tell this with boards a lot if someone does board press because it's going to yep. bang on the board. And so this was actually a technique that I got from one of my training partners, John Giffen, who's, uh, he's like a world record bench press holder in the IPF, like super strong bencher. And when I came there, I was doing that. And he's like, he's like, I should never hear that sound. And, and so it really makes a lot of sense with what you're saying as well, because that way you're there, you're loading everything and you haven't unloaded any of that tension yet. And so you still have that, you know, high degree of stiffness to transfer force back up whether or not you choose to use the leg drive or if it's just raw power or anything, you're holding it there. And so in the competition, when you come down and you are using your chest a little bit, but your back and everything is still engaged, you're a little bit fresher. And so I like to take that approach to make training a little bit more intentionally harder. Um, that way, when you get into the meet and you can do something else, you can add that extra little bit then it's, it's just going to be better. It's like uh, when I was boxing one of my old coaches, um, every now and then we'd, we'd, you know, have really heavy gloves. So like maybe a 16 ounce glove when meanwhile, I only fight with like a, like an eight ounce glove when I was doing Muay Thai. Right. And so it's double the weight and you wouldn't do that all the time, but every now and then just, so you can kind of like take away some of your advantages and you'd have to develop some of the other skills. And so it makes a lot of sense with what you're saying about the different phases of the lift. And it's just, really interesting i guess to kind of pull pieces here and there and and see how it overlaps because it seems to overlap really nicely into the framework that you're laying out which is you really know like a like i said it's a bold statement you know maybe it's a bit of hubris mm -hmm. i think that the model if you know i tell people if you can understand all seven pillars and then you can see how they interact with each other you'll understand exactly why everyone does everything the way that they do it every possible training movement that would develop every possible specific adaptation for different outcomes that you're looking for for a human organism mm -hmm. because there's very different outcomes that you're looking for for a professional male tennis player as opposed to a strongman or a power lifter or a linebacker and um and it's it's uh Every time I think about every cue that a powerlifting coach gives to an athlete, if you go to a powerlifting meet, every cue is a psychological method that you would be feeding to that person for them to maximize the movement strategy of compression. Mm -hmm. That's powerlifting is the ultimate expression of compression that exists on the planet. Strongman, because there's some overhead lifting, has a little bit more of a degree of expansion to it. A little bit, but very little. Very little difference. Being an interior football player is very close to being as compressed as you can possibly get to. 
you know, ultimately I always think like, what is the point of creating a compressive strategy or an expansive strategy? And I, Bill would say the point of it is that we are all fighting uh, not being able to control the rotation of our body while living on a planet with a gravitational field, all right? Which is like a, a wild statement, okay? And, and it's like Bill is 10 times smarter than anybody else I've ever met. And he's 10 times smarter than I am. And all I try to do is figure out what this dude's actually saying and then like translate it in a way that makes sense for coaches to be able to be like, oh, that's what he's saying. So, and, and he does a great job with that, to tell you the truth. It's just that, you know, it, it's, it's like, I think that I can be one rung down and help even get the point across uh, in different ways. So for instance, like if you're, if you're uh, just in regular life, you know, the demands of rotating that you can't control are pretty easy, okay? Like, I'm sitting here, like, there's some demands that are being put on my skeleton right now that are, are rotating me, and I fight them a little bit. Because rotation can be a problem if you can't control it. Now, think about it if you are under maximum load in a squat. What is the absolute worst thing that could possibly happen to you? Rotating, you know? And you will use everything in that moment from a strategy perspective to prevent you from rotating. Uh, and what will take place if you train with that enough, you will learn to get better and better. And you're gonna use compression as your strategy. <gasps> Brace, walk down, IR, you know, uh, every like concentric orientation, every possible thing that you could do is going to try to prevent your body from turning through space because that is the worst thing that could possibly happen under maximum load. And, and when you see people, like if you've personally trained people and you watch them bench press, it's amazing how really weak people and really unathletic people, they turn so much when they're bench pressing. And you're like, oh my God, you're the worst bench presser I've ever seen. And really elite bench pressers, they do not turn. They probably do if you were to analyze them with very high tech motion capturing technology. And I guarantee when they fail, they probably are turning too much. They can't control rotation under that level of demand. But you compress to try to prevent rotation. What other sport is like, and a lot of sports need rotation. Like you need to be able to rotate. And for instance, in football, because there's different positions, a slot receiver needs to be able to rotate. They need to be able to run forward, turn, and get the ball. Uh, if I take away their rotation by creating too many compression adaptations to them, I might make them into like a David Boston kind of a, a story where it's like, bro, you're, you're, you know, like Booger McFarlane would say, like, you're like a, a Popeye's biscuit short of being a tight end now, uh, which is cool if you have to block. And why is that cool if you have to block? Because the last thing you want to do if you're blocking on the line is get turned. The minute that you get turned as an offensive lineman, is the minute that your quarterback just got decapitated. So if I can take my linemen and be able to compress them through training, compress, 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 and now they are harder and more difficult to rotate, then I probably have more of a wall that protects a quarterback and that can pass block as well. And so it's, it's, I'm seeking similar adaptations with my interior football players because I want to create a compression strategy so that they don't get turned 
The minute that you turn them, boom, they're on their back. They're on their side. They're on whatever. You just pancake that dude because you found some way to turn them. It's like if you look at the sports like, uh, you know, even judo, jujitsu, wrestling, you, you need those athletes to be compressed enough so that they're harder to turn unless they're like a funk style wrestler. And it's like, I don't even know how to deal with this dude. Like they're, but a Muay Thai fighter, they can't be too compressed. And now they can't turn. If I take John Jones and I take his turning away from him, he's no longer this praying mantis that can kick me from three quarters of the way across the ring. You know, now I've created like this block, like a Brock Lesnar. And he's not going to be able to look pretty when he punches. It's just, it's like a, a Lego man coming at you with hammer fists yeah. or something like that. Um, so it, it is purely like how, uh, it's almost like how sketchy is it for you to turn? in the sport that you've chosen is it really really dangerous is your survival on the line if you turn and powerlifting it's like yeah your survival might be on the line if you turn and you have to get better and better and better at every possible and the more that your muscles can adapt and become more concentric aka hypertrophy the less you're going to turn the more that i can yeah. compress your skeleton in particularly on the posterior side the more I can create erector strength to just push your skeleton forward, the more that I can crush it, uh, the more that I can widen it out side to side, it's harder to turn that thing. You know, your rib, if you look at, at a rib cage of a really strong person, it's wide and mm -hmm. flat. If I look at the rib cage of a marathon runner, it's like you could just grab around them. They're almost like a little a circle and it can turn really easy yeah. versus a big, wide, flat rib cage. It's like trying to turn a two by four through space. Like, you know, if you've ever seen bodybuilders jog, it's like a comical thing where the arms are out to the side mm -hmm. and the body turns in this really kind of like mechanical robotic looking fashion. And it's because of the adaptations that are compressive in nature, both on the, you know, people, people will talk about changes in pennate angle and things like that as, as muscular adaptations that are structural changes but there's not enough time spent on looking at the morphology of the skeleton as it changes over time due to resistance training demands. I would love someone to do some imaging over the course of five years on someone that's a novice to someone that becomes pretty damn strong with resistance training, because I bet you will see actual demonstrable changes in the morphology of their thorax and their pelvis as it becomes more compressed anterior to posterior and it widens out laterally, medial to lateral, uh, because that's a, a structure that's less likely to turn and rotate through space, which is undesirable for the outcomes that you're seeking. Um, that's really interesting, actually. So that th there are a couple things there that um, you said that kind of sparked a couple of thoughts uh, in, in my head anyways. And so um, the first thing was talking about the ability to resist rotation and, and stability. And so I guess how I see stability and, and how I usually define it, and again, I, I understand that there's you know more nuance to it than just this, but I find that this is a pretty easy way to understand stability is your ability to resist force, right? And so like, for instance, if I'm doing a deadlift, like a sumo deadlift, and my glute max is really, really working. Like that's that's the force generator. Whereas, you know, all of the smaller muscles that are helping with the external rotation and stabilizing, I'm trying to kind of resist force, especially because my adductors are trying to kind of pull in a little bit. 
right? And so it's not that they're not generating force, but they're acting more as like trying to resist force so that the prime movers can really do their jobs. Um, and, and that makes a lot of sense because even when you talk about bench press and things like that, I always talk about, you know, regardless of whether or not you're using leg drive, an athlete, I shouldn't be able to push your knees in, out, anything. You should be so tight and be generating so much force and driving it into the ground that if I go to push your knee, it's just solid. It's like a, like a brick yep. wall, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, hundred percent, like you can see people go like this and, you know, then in three months they're, you know, they PR on their bench press by like 70 pounds. And it's like, did yep. you really get 70 pounds stronger in your bench press in three months? Or did you just create a very high level of efficiency through, you know, proper movement training and, and patterning and, uh, and, and developing that skill of stability. So, so yeah. that was the first thing that I thought was really interesting that you said. The second thing was talking about movement variation and I guess I'll just say like level of preparedness for, for certain positions. So um, for instance, the other day I, and like, I haven't run in a long time. Like I was 300 pounds before I went into quarantine. I decided to take this time down uh, to, to diet down. And so now I'm about 258, 259. So I'm quite a bit lighter than I was. So I haven't run in a long time. <laughs> and um, this, this girl that I was hanging out with, she is a runner. She does a lot of like endurance stuff like that. And uh, we were for a walk one day and she's like, Oh, I beat you in a race. And I was like, uh, probably. And then we ran and it was crazy because I did not think that I was fast but I was able to generate so much damn force that I was just like, I was running super fast, but I stopped after like 20 meters because I felt like the issue was, I felt like I was going about 60% and I felt like I was just ripping it. And, and my concern was literally, I'm not used to this. If I try and reach full capacity, I might blow my fucking hamstring off. Yep. You know, not because I have weak hamstrings or anything like that, but because like I'm not, not prepared. prepared. My body's not prepared to generate that much force in those planes of motion, and yep. and that was so. That's actually one thing that I really liked about some of the stuff that Westside does in terms of, you know, their their utility of various exercises to really build up the robustness of whether it's your back, your hips, your knees, whatever, from from an injury prevention standpoint. And then also just getting generally strong. Like I, I am a big believer that getting a good general strength base is really important, especially if you're going to be pushing, you know, like a 900 pound squat. Cause like you said, you rotate like, you know, half a centimeter to the left and it, that could literally be your spine just snapping, you know, whereas yeah. if you have good general strength to it, to a certain degree, obviously there is a cutoff where you start seeing diminishing returns. But once you have a certain level, I think that that's, really beneficial to to support you know counter rotation and at least be prepared for if something does happen maybe it's really hot and the bar slips because you're sweaty or something like that that you can you know at least tolerate that that position and potentially course correct and and avoid a pretty serious injury um yeah i feel like i'm going to listen to this podcast over and over and over i just feel like there's so many gems you're dishing out there's one more area that I want to get into because I think that, uh, you know, when I, when I put together this model that goes into this book, you know, I start the book off actually with, um, with prior models that I pulled from to be able to create the, the training model that explains the seven pillars. And, and one area that I, that I use, like it's, 
theoretical model number two in the in the book is called the invariant representation of, of memory. And it's something that I actually picked up from a book called On Intelligence that was written by Jeff Hawkins. And he's okay. the guy that originally designed the Palm Pilot. And he was one of the early pioneers in the artificial intelligence area for tech. Um, and it's interesting because he, he, he wanted to figure out how to build AI for tech. And to do that, he taught himself neuroscience. And then he wrote a <laughs> he wrote a book on what neuroscience. I'm just teaching myself neuroscience. Yep, I mean, so he wrote a book on neuroscience that I think is still one of the best neuroscience books that's ever been written, and it's it's called On Intelligence. And the most fascinating part of the book to me, it's hard to say that because there's it's a great great book, but it's it's called the Invariant Representation of Memory, and. It's almost hard to explain this thing without just giving an example. So the example I always start off with is, um, you know, you know how to sign your name. And when I'm teaching seminars, I'm doing this, I'm like, okay, everybody's got paper and a pen, like sign your name. And people like literally just sign your name on the paper. And then it's like, okay, take the pen out of your hand and sign your name into the air in front of you. Okay, you did it, right? It's pretty easy to do. Now use your foot and point your foot in front of you and sign your name into the air with your foot. Now do it with your nose and then do it with your elbow. And, and it's pretty easy to do. Like, and, and it's interesting because you'll follow the same strokes. You'll follow the same rhythm. It'll be in the same angulation. The sequence is exactly the same. And, and it's because the memory is invariant, which means that it does not change. Uh, it's burned into your brain so deeply that you can literally unfold this memory to fit different contexts. Uh, at a moment notice. Mm -hmm. And, and it's the same way that, um, so, so I think that's like the perfect example, but, but then I say, you know, if I actually put like ink on your elbow and I had you write your name on a piece of paper in front of you, it would probably be recognizable in some way, shape or form that that's your signature. Okay. But is it going to be all that good? Especially this first time you've never done this before in your life. No, it's probably going to be kind of shit. Okay. But if I give you a month, and you practice this five times a week, and you devote 30-minute sessions to it, I guarantee you after a month, it's going to look way better. You're going to improve the specificity of signing your name with your elbow. Uh, but do you need to do that? Okay? Probably not. All right? It's available for you, but you probably don't need to do it, because when when is this going to be something that you need to do in your life? Okay? So, so now it's kind of like, um, you know, but here, like, imagine that, you know, when do you learn to sign your name with cursive writing? I think it's when you're eight years old in third grade, okay? If I take an eight-year-old who has two weeks of penmanship training with cursive writing, and I ask them to sign their name with their foot in front of them in the air, they are not going to be able to do it because they have not accumulated enough reps with their hand to burn this memory into their brain because they're what are they burning in? They're burning in a motor program, okay? The motor program is the memory, and the memory is, an, it can be modified, but at a certain point, it is burned in, and it doesn't really change, okay? So what I'm looking to do with anyone is, is what do you need to do? Like, am I training someone to be a basketball player? I, I need to be able to burn in the invariant representation of how to shoot the ball appropriately 
with the fundamental mechanics that are considered to be appropriate within the windows of biomechanical proficiency for the action of shooting a basketball. And if I teach them the basics for long enough, now when they go and they shoot, you know, off the dribble, boom, they, they kind of display an appropriate shot or they shoot a layup. You know, there are slight variations to the way that you can shoot. You can shoot off the, you can catch the ball and shoot, catch and shoot. You can dribble and shoot. You can shoot going to the left. You can shoot going to the right. If you were to actually break down how different those things are on slow motion video, you're like, wow, the biomechanical differences are beyond belief. They're almost immeasurable. But you can unfold it and figure out how to put the, the right shot in in that exact moment, but only if you have the memory of the fundamentals of a jump shot burned into your brain so deep. Like, it's the same way. How can Patrick Mahomes throw the ball across the field like back across the field, running to the left, he throws it back to the right and puts it right into the receiver's hands like while he's running full speed. It seems impossible, but it, he didn't start that way. You know what I mean? He had to have started with the most fundamental learning of the basic throwing mechanics, and he's probably never practiced the exact iteration of that throw in his entire life. But it can unfold and and he can sequence it and put it together and, and make that happen for a successful outcome because the invariant memory of the essence of this concept is burned so deeply into his brain. Where am I going with this? Is that if you know how to compress from a concentric orientation, you're going to be able to figure out this concept under a lot of different circumstances, okay? Mm -hmm. You might have learned this concept by going into a sport like powerlifting, and you learned through reps and drills how to squat right, and you got a great coach, and every cue that they gave you over time allowed you to understand how to create the compression strategy within the confines of that movement at a higher level and a higher level and a higher level and a higher level. And now that like, hey, let's say you were a really good power lifter, but you're like, you know what, I'm bored with this and I'm going to go and I'm going to try strongman. And it's like, ah, I've never done the yoke before, but I have to pick the yoke up and then I move forward. And it's like, it's a super high level compression activity. I bet you the power lifter is going to be able to kind of figure it out on day one. Obviously, if they practice the specificity of the yoke, they're going to get better and better and better but they're gonna be better on day one than someone that hasn't developed a high level invariant representation of a compression strategy in their brain. And it's, it's the same way for, for all of these kinds of sports where you're saying like, you know, I bet you a really elite strongman athlete, if they just focus on powerlifting for a little while, can go in and absolutely dominate that sport, okay? And it's like, yeah, I agree with you. And the reason is because they have this unbelievably high level invariant representation memory of how to compress at a super high level it's 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 just it's funny to me because like i imagine it as like a school assignment in 10th grade or something and it's like your assignment is you have to memorize the gettysburg address all right and however it is you want to memorize it you can sing it you can write it down a bunch of times if you memorize this thing now you don't have to relearn the Gettysburg Address if you're going to write it out for me. If you're going to type it out for me, I say, hey, 
give me the Gettysburg Address, but I want it typed. You don't have to relearn it in a typing format. And then I say, hey, I want you to give me the Gettysburg Address, but I want you to speak it out loud to me verbally. You don't have to relearn it verbally to be able to express it that way. If I said, hey, I want you to give me the Gettysburg Address through interpretive dance, you wouldn't have to relearn it. Like you're just expressing it differently under the different circumstances. It's if you practice it under those circumstances, you become more efficient with it. But the memory and the concept is there. It's just the specific, it's the same thing, even running is a good example. If you're a cross country runner, every new meet that you go to is gonna have a hill, an uphill, a downhill, there'll be tree roots. You don't have to relearn how to run to be able to run on a hill of a different grade. You're unfolding it better. Mm-hmm. Now, some sports require an unbelievable degree of standardization. Powerlifting is an incredibly standardized sport. The bar is this length, okay? The plates are this circumference. Uh, you know, the, the range of motion that you have to display is this ratio of joints to one another. So you better get really, really technically good at going to the exact specifications that are standardized to an incredibly high level for this sport. So if you don't have it, it would be like if I signed you up for a penmanship contest with your elbow and you're like, you know what? I am incredible at signing my name with my hand. Okay. I would say, I bet you in a couple of months, you're going to be unbelievable at signing your name with your elbow because your memory of this motor program and this concept has been forged in steel. Like as a young child, you put the time in, you really learned how to sign your name with proficiency. And because you did that, your capacity for signing your name with your elbow is going to be really high. We just have to work it on you so that you understand all of the specific demands of elbow signing. It's the same damn thing. If you are a freak of nature nose tackle, okay, you're the nastiest, strongest dude. You are Aaron Donald, okay? And I'm like, hey, listen, Aaron Donald, when you're done with football, for some reason, if you want to come over into powerlifting, I'm pretty sure that I can make you the greatest thing that the sport has ever seen, you know? We're like Warren Sapp. Hey, Warren Sapp, would you like to learn how to be a competitive powerlifter? Because I bet you, you will dominate in this sport more than anyone has ever dominated in the history of this sport. It's, 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 they develop the underlying foundation of the invariant memory of the most important concept that you would need. It's just that now we're going to unfold this concept in a slightly different manifestation that has very specific standards associated with it that now you just have to practice so that you can learn how to display that which is your potential in this exact area. So that's how I look at these things. And what is the way that I can maximize your invariant representation of the compression strategy? And now that I've done that, now, like it can't get any higher. Like it's, it's sort of, it is what it is. Now I'm going to direct you towards the very specific standardized approaches that have to be displayed. But if, let's say that you're a power lifter and you're kind of a shitty power lifter, but you have the best fucking form that anybody's ever seen. You are so technically sound, blah, 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 blah. 
but your compression strategy hasn't been maximized. Maybe now I use other kinds of training methods. Maybe you need a hypertrophy plan because you don't have the tissue changes that actually maximize the compression strategy for you to be able to now unfold under the specific standardized uh, uh, demonstration of powerlifting. So that, if that makes sense, it's like there's these, these two realms, there's two silos that are kind of existing next to each other of the invariant representation of the memory itself, the potential, and then the specific unfolding of that potential in these, in these constraints and circumstances. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I think that's something that a lot of people observe when you get an athlete who translates from one sports to, or transition, sorry, from one sport to another, you know, like Dan Green was a gymnast. Um, I think Andre Milanichev was like a bodybuilder. Like you, you spend all this time building up certain athletic qualities, certain psychological qualities, and then you go into another sport and all of a sudden you're just crushing it. And, and even if, even if it's a matter of like, I'm an endurance runner and now I'm an Olympic weightlifter, two diametrically opposite things. There's still a lot of crossover, even just from how you might approach it. And so, so I think that makes a lot of sense, even just like from an, like an anecdotal standpoint. And then actually one of the other things that I think it does speak to as well is in powerlifting, there is much less variance than maybe a play could have in, in football, right? In a football play, there's about 5 billion things that could happen that could go wrong, that could go right. Whereas in a powerlifting setting, you set up for a squat and you do a single rep. There's much less variation there. Uh, you know, you're not outside, the sun's not gonna be in your eyes. There, there's, there's a whole lot more standardization like you were saying. And on the one hand, that makes things a whole lot easier. On another hand, it makes things a little bit harder as well because now your window for technical correction is so narrow, you know, and I don't know if one's harder than the other. I would assume that, you know, doing the football stuff is, is quite a bit harder, but the level of repetition required to make changes that literally aren't even visible, that like you were saying earlier, would literally mm -hmm. require, you know, specific uh, lab equipment to, to get the proper imaging of the biomechanical movements and the kinematics that are, that are actually happening in real time. You know, they're not even per perceivable, but a very experienced coach can see it and mm -hmm. a very experienced athlete can feel it. And it's just like the, the cues that I might give a novice athlete are almost the exact same cues that I might give like my world champion, right? It, it's like, as you're lowering the bar, feel your chest raising up to meet it. You know, don't let mm -hmm. it hang you. Um, don't do this, do that. Like they're the exact same cues. It's just on the spectrum of perfection on the far left, let's say we have dog shit technique on the far right, we have absolute perfect execution. You know, the world champion might just be a little bit further to that perfect side than the novice, but it's the exact same things. And, and it's just that repetition, like you were saying, and then even like maybe getting better at bracing for the deadlift might help you with your technical execution of bracing for the squat, because there is going to be a little bit of crosstalk there, even though it's less specific, you know, for, for that movement. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. So we're coming up to, 
I think almost two hours actually. So <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time because it, it was it was a really interesting conversation. I didn't want to interrupt you or anything like that. Um, but uh, yeah, just one one last question, if that's all right. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what and this is something I ask everyone, as I mentioned to you earlier. What's one opinion that you have that sort of goes against the grain of maybe some of the common literature or what's commonly believed in, in the sports science realm? It's a great question. And I, I know, uh, you know, if, if anybody follows my Instagram, basically I'm just kind of like an industry terrorist. And uh, I just love to like, you know, find some, think about something that I think is <laughs> dumb that everybody does and just like, write something that's like hey uh here's here's why i think this is dumb and i just like throw a grenade out into like social media and yeah. i just watch the 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 aftermath of it um you know i i one of the things that i think is is just like kind of crazy that just doesn't make a, like sense to me on much of a level are the uh pushing to pulling ratios like people are like well you know the only way that you're going to have shoulder health long term is if you have like this magical ratio of pulling exercises to pushing exercises. And I'm like, I, I don't think that has anything to do with what actually, it, it might be so indirect that there could be, because it's like every, there's, it, it, look, it's complex. Like the human body is complex. Pain science is complex. There's potentially 17 different statements that you could make that all end up working for different reasons. And as people don't even know why, okay? Yeah. But but to me, like it, it, like the primary or the the most likely pathway that would lead towards shoulder health has so little to do with pushing to pulling ratios that I think that's one of those ones that you got to throw out because to me it's it's like um it's it's a uh, it's almost like whether or not a door is swinging properly, okay? And if you look at a door swinging in the frame, there's multiple things that could be wrong as to why this door is not opening and closing properly, okay? One could be that the hinges are not oiled properly, okay? Another could be that the frame is crooked. Another could be that the ground is actually crooked and it's not, it's not straight. It's like the door is hitting the ground and it's like, oh, I know why, because every time the door hits the ground, it's always the hinges. Um, I had a call coming through there. I had to, I had to get rid of that before I could uh, continue on. But like, I think some people are so myopic. It's almost like you get a surgeon and they're like, it's always the hinges. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to shave a little bit off here and then watch it. It's going to swing free perfectly every time. And it's like, yeah, it does that for like a couple of months. And then it's like back to it. And it's like, why? Because it wasn't a hinge problem. It was a frame problem, but it wasn't a frame problem this other time. It was actually a floor problem because somebody, mm -hmm. the floor, and if you live in New York City, you understand, like, the damn floors are always uneven all over the place. Right. So it's like being able to appreciate the interactions between the different pieces. And, and in this particular case, like, when I think about a shoulder, I think about it from the perspective of, okay, you've got a, a humerus bone that sticks into a glenoid fossa, and a glenoid fossa is part of a scapula. And a scapula sits on top of a rib cage, and a rib cage sits on top of a set of lungs, and a set of lungs have alveoli inside. And the more that they're able to inflate in certain directions, the more that they influence the position of the rib cage. And the position of the rib cage influences the position of the scapula, and the position of the scapula influences the position of the glenoid. 
So if you're like, hey, all you got to do is push and pull right because scapular stability, I'm like, oh my God, like you are, you are a hinge guy on a door problem and you have no ability to see the other pieces. And I'm more interested in checking the floor, the frame, then maybe the hinges, and, and then who knows, maybe, maybe it is the lock or the key or something like that. But it's, it's insane to try to just uh, boil these things down and explain a solution through something that's so localized that, it, that appreciates nothing of what's happening behind the scenes. And, and look, I get it. Sometimes like, you know, even I'm sure nutritionally, it's like, hey, as long as you're hitting the appropriate amount of protein, you're probably not going to have enormous amounts of fat acquisition on a general population person. And it's like, here's a simple solution that takes care of a lot of things. And you say that to somebody really smart in nutrition and they're like, yeah, this is just such a simplistic non, you know, and it's like, all right, maybe I have to take a step back and like, Hey, maybe you are accomplishing changes to the floor, the frame and the hinges by just balancing, pushing and pulling. But I really, really don't think so. Yeah, no, and and that's that's a problem too because again, like kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, it's like you can explain something simply, but for someone to really understand it to the same degree that you do, I mean, how long do you have? Five hours? Ten years? Like you didn't get your 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 PhD or your master's or anything like that? I'm not sure if you have a PhD. Um, I do. Yeah. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, I've just got a bunch of them. Um, <laughs> It, it doesn't it doesn't exactly happen in one conversation and so to expect that your explanation is going to be received and understood to the same level of i guess depth is is really unrealistic and so you do have to break it down simply but then at the same time you know it's it's it is definitely tricky it's like the whole uh i think people looking for very simple solutions to things that aren't simple like mm -hmm. you know oh don't eat that it's got chemicals in it it's like well so does everything, right? Your blood has like formaldehyde, acetate, all these different things in it. And, you know, it's, it's, and, and, and it's like, you don't think about that. Those are toxic, but then it's a dose response issue. And, and like, mm -hmm. you know, I like, I'm a big proponent of getting your back super fucking strong because I've never seen anyone with a massive back who's weak, you know, it's like, it's good for deadlifting. It's good for squatting yeah. and it looks super cool, you know? So I mean, those are good enough for me, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily convinced either that it plays any real direct role in, in shoulder health. Like you said, I think it might be, well, because I'm doing all this back stuff, my rear delts and my rotator cuff are a little bit better and maybe I have a little bit better range of motion. Yeah, so I think it's, it's probably like a lot of indirect ways if someone is experiencing that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think that lat strength or size necessarily <laughs> is gonna do much for your shoulder health, especially considering that it's an internal rotation. And usually that's kind of what people are are bastardizing and claiming that causes shoulder issues with bad posture. It, so. it goes back to the same stuff I was talking. There's either compression or expansion. And yeah. if you're really strong, you're compressing hard. Yeah. Like, and, and I don't, if you're pulling, you're compressing. If you're pushing, you're compressing. If you really want to be able to get out of that problem, you probably need to go into the other strategy. And it's going to be drills that people, I mean, I, it's hard to explain it in here, but like, uh, like it's the same thing. Like people are like, just do more face pulls and band pull aparts. And I'm like, a band pull apart might work, but not for the reasons that you think it works. It'll work yeah. because it's it's supinating your hands. It's going to ER your humerus, and it's going to abduct 
you're humorous. But if you're doing it while compressing your mid back, it's not going to do any of those things because you're going to reorient the ribs with the scapula with the humerus, and you're actually going to be doing more IRing than you think. And it's like, no, I'm not. And it's like, oh, I don't want to get into this conversation. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it, yeah. it's kind of like if you were able do to your do research, a, bro. Do your yeah, research. Yeah. So, and I'm like, okay, fine. Do your band pull apart. Just do me a favor. Lay on the ground, too fine, <laughs> and uh, keep your back as flat as you can on the ground the entire time and probably just see how far you can go before someone could drive a Mack truck under your lower back. If you can do that, I bet you'll have a lot more shoulder health going forward because you'll be doing some stuff that involves expansion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and the number of times I've given people things like that and they're like, actually, you know what? That's weird, but it actually did help. And I'm like, oh, I'm frustrated because it really didn't actually teach you anything. <laughs> but It's like, oh, really? Did you think I was just messing with you? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it, yeah. That's but hilarious. you know, this is this has been a, a really great conversation. I appreciate you letting me get into these things, and uh, and I hope that this is you know I like it when when information is is new for people, but at the same time understandable and useful. And mm-hmm. and I hope that in in some instances that's where we went because novelty for the sake of novelty is uh, is is not what I'm after. I'm I'm after mm-hmm. uh, being able to explain more with less believe it or not Mm -hmm. no i mean i think it was really interesting i actually pretty much didn't ask any of the questions that uh, that i had set out to but i'm way happier with the outcome and and the direction of the conversation so um before uh before i let you go where can the listeners find you like if someone's looking for you where where can they find you are you active on any social media platforms you have a website Yep, I primarily use Instagram for everything. You know, I've, uh, my bio link takes people to all the things that I offer. Uh, I'm at, the handle is at Dr. Pat Davidson. And so it's DR period Pat Davidson um, to be able to find me. And, you know, I'm building out more things. I'm going to have like a online platform for the Rethinking the Big Patterns model. Uh, there's also like for the strength score concept, that's got its own instagram page now i can't remember exactly what it is there might be like an underscore between strength and score or something like that but um yeah i mean there's just a lot of things that i've got that are coming out that i think will become more you know popularized and and widespread uh so hopefully hopefully that's the case because i i think that there's some interesting things that i'm hoping kind of rock the fitness and performance communities once once it starts to get exposed out there a little bit more you know, I'm super excited to, to see all that stuff and looking forward to seeing your book once it comes out. So all of that stuff is going to be linked in the show notes, guys. So definitely make sure you go check him out, give him a follow and uh, look at some of the stuff he's doing. So Pat, thanks so much for joining us, man. It was awesome. Thank you. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks you as well. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took a lot from it that you can apply to your own situation to see much better results. I just have one quick personal favor to ask of you please make sure you subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. When you do this, it helps me get better at producing content and increases my exposure so I can continue putting out high-quality information for you guys. Next, I want to extend a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram at Stacked Strength. I'll help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to connect with me directly, so make sure you head on over and jump into my DMs. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. 
and I'll see you next time.